This is Set Aside Some Time, an MSPN podcast, and it's brought to you by the National MSP Network, or MSPN for short. And now, on to the episode. Thank you for setting aside some time with us today. I am your host, Bridget Smith, for today's podcast. And joining us today are Kate Lewis, Jeremy Farquhar, and Steve Shaw. Kate Lewis is a Medicare secondary payer legal expert and managing assistant general counsel for AF Group. Her work includes developing the Medicare secondary payer compliance program for the company's four brands in 43 states, including preparing Medicare set-asides for both submission and non-submission, resolving conditional payments, and establishing Section 111 reporting practices. Jeremy Farquhar is a senior product consultant at ISO Claims Partners. In his present role, he serves as a Section 111 subject matter expert, tasked with providing ISO clients with assistance regarding all facets of Section 111 reporting, from technical support to policy guidance. Prior to joining ISO Claims Partners, Jeremy worked for CMS's COBC and BCRC contractors for a period of 17 years. Steve Shaw is a claimant's attorney practicing in Seattle, Washington. He primarily represents plaintiffs in personal injury claims. Steve is also a fellow and instructor with the Certified Medicare Secondary Payer Professional Program. He is the editor of Subrogation Death Book, published by the Washington State Association for Justice, and he is a consultant for plaintiff's attorneys on lien resolution issues. Okay, thank you for joining us today, everyone. We really appreciate your time and are excited to talk about ICD coding and really how it is such an important part of Medicare secondary payer compliance. And so we really want to start there and talk about why it is so important. And I'd like each of you to kind of Tell me why, from your perspectives, your different perspectives and backgrounds, why it's important in these various uh, areas of Medicare compliance, conditional payments, Section 111, and even to, to an extent, future medicals as well. Jeremy, do you want to start? Yeah, sure. Um, so ICD codes that really are, are at the heart of, of the, C, the CMS Section 111 reporting process. It, it's it's probably the most important piece of information that's required to be reported via that process. It's, it, it enables CMS to do exactly what they need to do. Uh, it, it allows them to appropriately coordinate benefits. Uh, they, they are able to determine when there should be another primary payer other than Medicare based on those ICD codes. If those ICD codes are, are incorrect or if they're too vague or if they're missing, uh, then CMS is, is not going to be able to appropriately coordinate benefits. And there, there are lots of potential downstream negative impacts as a result of that, such as you know, increased conditional payment exposure, uh, denied claims for the claimant beneficiary, uh, potential penalties. Uh, and uh, it, it, that that's all all very important. It's not just about the Section 111 reporting, yet you have to take into consideration all of the the potential downstream impacts that this has. And this is probably the most impactful piece of the information that's reported via Section 111 as far as those downstream impacts are concerned. Okay, thank you. 
But Steve, what about you from the plaintiff's perspective? You know, I would just echo uh, again what Jeremy has said with respect to how important they are, um, especially when the uh, the provision of uh, benefits for uh, for a claimant. Uh, being able to decipher what's claim related and what isn't is really the heart of what we do. Uh, when anybody is getting any kind of claim related treatment, uh, if you don't understand that language, if you don't come to appreciate and understand how that affects your client uh, and their ability to get treatment, and then later on the ability to, uh, you know, separate out what's claim related and what isn't, um, then you're 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 missing the target, uh, and you may end up causing confusion downstream these uh, problems can sometimes get kind of baked in if you think of you know uh, you're, you got a recipe and if you don't get the the recipe right in the beginning it's, it becomes more and more difficult to pull that ingredient out uh, and the same is with uh, with the the ICD codes if we're not uh, properly identifying what's claim related and what isn't a lot of these problems can get baked in and they can cause bigger problems down the line yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And Kate, from your perspective, more of an in-house perspective, what are your thoughts on, on the impact of ICD coding and MSP compliance? From a carrier perspective, the most significant impact, I think, is conditional payments. Uh, there are direct financial consequences for inaccurate or not inappropriate reporting. So we, we see that Section 111 ICD code and translating directly into conditional payments, which we then have to resolve. Uh, there are other potential financial impact as well uh, with civil monetary penalties, which haven't realized yet, but it is something we're keeping an eye on in terms of making sure that the coding we have now is, is accurate and correct. Great. And I, I just kind of want to expand upon those those topics a little bit. And and Steve, what you had said from the perspective of the plaintiff or claimant um, in a case and really understanding those codes and the impact of those codes, I think also from an adjuster level at the very beginning of the case, right, inputting the correct codes via Section 111, which is kind of what Jeremy had said. Um, so from a conditional payment perspective, what are some of the types of things that you guys are seeing when it comes to the coding um, and the ICD codes that are used as opposed to those that we're getting from CMS as a result of those uh, uh, conditional payment letters? Yeah, you know, it's kind of a garbage in, garbage out theory where um, because, uh, you know, BCRC allows reporting to be done uh, kind of in a descriptive way as opposed to in a more precise way relying on the codes, you have a lot of people saying, you know, a claim-related injury to the neck, a claim-related injury to the, you know, the right shoulder, they get very general with their descriptions. And while that's fine, uh, and I'm sure from, uh, you know, Medicare's perspective, they it gives them a, a wider, uh, you know, spread as far as what they're going to be searching for. Um, again, from the claimant's perspective, what you may be creating is a very, um, uh, I don't want to, again, I don't want to say error laden, but uh, a, a conditional payments ledger that's full of stuff that you're going to have to correct and possibly miss. Uh, you know, you can imagine as you're uh, auditing a ledger uh, that you're getting with respect to your client's claim and you're trying to find things that are related and things that aren't, uh, dealing with bundled charges, 
uh, where you've got, you know, a whole host of uh, ICD codes and you're not really sure which one is applying to the treatment that it's describing, um, it can really end up uh, causing a lot of confusion, um, you know, when they're reported that way. But the best reported claims that I've seen are ones where plaintiffs have gone through, you know, maybe they have the, all the bills at this point, they can pull precise coding out and provide precise coding to Medicare and they get much better results, you know, on the CPL side, as well as when they're uh, getting to the point of the final demand. And, and that brings us to uh, another topic with the, with the ICD coding. And Kate, you, you had made this point in our prior discussions, but really updating those codes from ICD-9 to ICD-10 and maybe the impact of, of using the ICD-10 codes and maybe some of the, the issues with trying to do that updating. Absolutely. The ICD-9 codes uh, were no longer being used after, I believe, October 1st of 2015. And so claims prior to that date, the ones that have been reported, they just lack the specificity that the ICD-10 codes provide. They don't identify a particular side of the body, right or left. So what you're left with is a, you know, a knee injury or a shoulder injury. You're receiving conditional payments related to both, potentially both sides of the body when you may not have had an injury at all. But the trouble with updating those is that it's just depending on the volume of claims that you're reviewing and whether that's happening at the adjuster level, a lot of these claims have administratively closed. So they've administratively closed with ORM still open. It's this possibility that we will continue to get conditional payments on those. When they come across your desk, it's important to update them to ICD-10 if you can so that that reporting is that much more accurate. And Jeremy, are you seeing um, your your clients do that update? Are you recommending that update? Is that something you think that should be done? So it, it, it can definitely be helpful at times, but it's it's a bit of a, a tricky situation, right? Because most REs are not going to have the capability to update every claim that they submitted prior to 10-1-2015 <laughs> with, with ICD-10 codes. That is just an, an intense burden for folks. And that's why CMS had required there be an upgrade or a, a conversion from ICD-9 to ICD-10 for REs. But it, it can very much be helpful. Um, and so we, we with our clients, it, it depends on the scenario. Um, and sometimes what we end up doing is is suggesting if we're doing, say, conditional payment related work for folks and we're looking at the their their claims, we might say, hey, look, this is really vague. You could stand to update this and, and approach it from that end of the spectrum more so than on a, from the front end, suggesting that everybody update ICD-9 to ICD-10 because we just know that, that our clients aren't necessarily going to do that. It, it is tricky. Specificity is the key, though, that, you know, to to what Kate was saying, it's it's so important. And ICD-9 codes are, are really just much more vague by default. So if you can convert an ICD-9 to an ICD-10 where you've got that left versus right side of the body or, or any further uh, specificity, there are other ways in which ICD-10 codes can be a little bit more specific as well. Um, the better off you are, the more specific you can be, the, the better you are, and also to what, uh, to what Steve uh, was saying, 
you know, looking at the medical records, that is a great way to go. Um, if you have the medical documentation, use the medical documentation. That is the easiest way to get those codes. But be very careful. You have to look at each one of those codes before you report it to, to CMS. You need to review that carefully. There will be scenarios where there are codes in medical documentation that don't pertain to the accident for which the RE may have responsibility. There could be ongoing uh, health issues, diabetes, hypertension, cancer, you name it. Uh, and if they're on those medical documents and you just plug in everything that's on the medical document into uh, a record that you're submitting to CMS, that's where you're going to really get into trouble uh, with, with conditional payment exposure and potential for denied claims for the beneficiary. Yeah, you know, yeah. just in follow, in follow up to what Jeremy was saying, um, not, not all doctors or I, would, I should say a doctor's offices, uh, you know, the folks that decide what codes they're going to use when they pull the chart notes are created equal. <laughs> and, and for example, I'll, I'll, uh, you know, if somebody goes to a medical doctor uh, for a claim related visit, there may be one, two, even three ICD codes. However, when they go to a chiropractor uh, and they're, the chiropractor is only treating maybe one or two areas of the body, there could be 15 uh, ICD codes. And so you end up having to kind of d to distill uh, you know, between those two extremes, you know, what are the correct, what are the uh, proper claim related ICD codes? And so without someone in your office that has, you know, at least a working knowledge of what those codes are, how they're applied, you know, um, uh, how they are in context of deciding what's claim related and what isn't, um, you know, becomes a much more involved process that requires time and attention. And there are a lot of offices that don't provide that. They just kind of dump the information and they, they, they actually expect the carrier <laughs> to decipher what's claim related and what isn't. And that kind of, again, I'll just call it lazy claims work, uh, only leads to problems down the line. To touch upon that too, because I think that's a big frustration for people really deciding what codes to put in there and how, you know, if you have a, a plaintiff or a claimant that is alleging that their whole body was injured essentially right how do you really break it down when you're when you're deciding what to put in for section 111 or uh just in general on the claim even if you're not reporting from a carrier perspective i i think we have an obligation to report where we have accepted orm so we have the, the obligation to report the codes that are related and then at the time that there's a tpoc we have the obligation to report what accepted and then released as part of the settlement as well. And those may not always be the same, the same thing. Um, but I think, you know, using the most specific code that you can find at the time that you accept ORM is helpful because there are, there are a number of codes that can be used that can be derived from the medical records, but some of them are not helpful in that they reference just pain. Uh, so it might be the correct body part, but it might just be left knee pain as opposed to a specific injury, meniscus tear, or similar. Uh, but being able to specifically identify what's accepted, what's released, will be really important in making sure that conditional payments are accurate at the end of the settlement. That's a great point about those codes that reference something such as pain, because those those are those are particularly vague codes, and if you, you that and and. Yeah, to your point, you really have to review the the codes that are coming in in medical documentation. If you have a code that is vague like that, even though it is on the medical documentation, you may have to think about whether or not it makes sense to actually report that to CMS. Does that offer any value to them in determining what the injuries are 
or illnesses are for which the the carrier juror RE has responsibility. That's really what you, CMS needs. They need you to identify the, the injuries and illnesses for which you would have responsibility as the RRE, as the insurer or self-insured entity. And uh, that's that's your goal here. And you don't want to leave any gray area in there or as little gray area as possible because that gray area is where the problems start to, to arise. This is such a good point. I just wanted to add in that there have been times where I'm presented with a set of records and coding from the provider where I've had to go back to the provider and go, okay, <laughs> you know, the chart notes, the narrative, I understand what the injury is, but you've got, you know, all these different codes in here that kind of reference what you've mentioned in the chart notes, but it doesn't really specifically say, you know, stand upon one or, or one or two, you know, you're, you're, you're confusing the, you're watering down the issue for me as I'm trying to determine causation by putting in, you know, the kitchen sink. And again, as I was saying before, from the plaintiff's perspective, of course, you're trying to maximize your client's recovery. So you're going to put in, you would think logic would dictate as many codes as possible. But when you do that, you're now adding work to the carrier. Uh, the carrier's now trying to kind of decipher which codes seem to be important and which ones are just kind of redundant. Um, and, you know, again, you're you're causing more delay and less efficiency. Um, and so I've gone back to providers and said, okay, you tell me specifically what the injury is so we can decide on what code this, you know, we should be claim related. And then that, again, the the leaner you can make that that presentation of your demand, uh, the, the more efficient responses I get. And and by the same token, when I provide my, my claim to the carrier, um, and this is equal to when I'm reporting the claim to Medicare, uh, I provide a specific coding as I can um, you know, reliably support with evidence, you know, not just throw it against the wall and see if it sticks, you know, do I have evidence that supports this? Because again, cleaning it up later on just becomes more of a, more time consuming and more of a problem. Those are great points, everybody. Very, very good points. Um, so let me ask this, let's say at the beginning of a, of a case, which usually happens, um, the treatment and, and what really comes out at the end of the case can be different as far as injuries, right? When do you report that? If you're reporting ORM, and I think CMS gave us a little bit of guidance on this, but if you're reporting ORMY and you're putting in those diagnosis codes, and really the claim is at a as at a point that everything is premature, it's it's an accident, and you know you're not really sure. What what do you do at that point if you're if you're a, a carrier? I, I think that, you know, the, the key is, and, and Kate, I believe you had referenced this earlier, is, is the assumption of ORM. Uh, if you have ORM, and if that, this is scenarios, obviously, that would involve ongoing responsibility for medical, but if you have ORM, then you don't report until you've assumed ORM. And presumably, if you're going to assume ORM, at that point in time that you determine that you're assuming ORM, you've made an appropriate determination as to uh, to, to which codes are you're actually assuming responsibility for, which injuries or illnesses you are actually accepting responsibility for. Now, if you haven't made that determination yet, and you're, or if ORM has not actually been assumed, if it's still, if the jury's still out, if you're still reviewing the claim to determine uh, whether there's responsibility for medicals, you don't want to report at that point in time. The, the reporting trigger is the assumption of ORM. 
Uh, and so you have to know what injuries or illnesses you are accepting responsibility for medicals for when you assume ORM. So hopefully at that point in time, you can have some specific ICD codes. That's maybe easier said than done in certain scenarios, but, but that is key. Um, settlement scenarios, it's different. If, if you don't have ORM and then there's a settlement and there, or a TPOC event, uh, then, then you know you don't have to actually report that until the settlement occurs. If there was no ORM associated with that claim, and at that point in time, I think usually you've got a little bit better idea as to how things are going to shake out. And so, uh, along those lines, Jeremy, at some point, you know, carriers can update their their coding, right? If it becomes more apparent as to the uh, an injury that starts maybe out as a, a knee injury. Uh, you know, goes into more of a, a surgical type of situation, they can update that coding. That's true. They can. Uh, so if, if things evolve over time, it is possible to update those codes. This is this is kind of an area that gets a little fuzzy, though, as far as CMS's reporting requirements, um, because, you know, they there, there isn't really a specific requirement that you repeatedly circle back and update ICD codes. CMS, and maybe it's because it's it's a it's a little bit of an oversimplified view um, from from the development of the reporting requirements. I don't know. Uh, you know, it's it, you know, it, but really the requirement is to report that claim once once ORM is assumed or once uh, a TPOC occurs. Usually, with a TPOC scenario, you're not sending updates um, subsequent to submission of the TPOC, uh, or, or it's less likely that you need to. With ORM scenarios, you have those situations where the claim may evolve more over time, and and maybe those updates would be prudent uh, at that when that occurs. So if if you're aware uh, at, at a certain point in time that, that really that, that you, you have great more specificity for codes or something has changed, then you can send an update uh, throughout the life of the claim as, as you make those determinations. But CMS, you know, really the requirement is to report ORM and report it once and then basically close ORM when, when ORM terminates um, from CMS's point of view. So they don't, they don't very clearly specify that you have to continue to follow and constantly update the codes. And I, I think they're, they're leery of probably making that process too overly burdensome from an RE perspective. There's only so much that, it, that most carriers can do to continuously monitor and continuously update this stuff. At a certain point in time, it, it, it gets to be really extraordinarily time consuming. So it's, it's kind of striking a balance, but it is something to be mindful of. And if you know that there are significant differences that could have an impact on, on what they might identify for conditional payment recovery, or that might Im impact the, the coordination of benefits with that claimant, then it is uh, definitely advisable or a good idea that you can you can make updates to those codes. I can tell you from the claimant's perspective in reporting codes, um, it's a bit problematic. One, you have to time it right. I mean, uh, as Jeremy was saying, if you do it too soon, uh, you get a bit of a moving target as uh, providers start to, um, you know, maybe alter or not alter, but, you know, become more clear about what the diag ultimate diagnosis is going to be. And so, you know, by waiting, you know, a couple of months before you, you know, after the date of injury, before you report, if you're the claimant, if you're going to do claimant reporting of the, the coding is a good idea. But one problem I ran into, and I'm not sure if others have, have dealt with this on the claimant side, is I've reported um, a claim when I get my first set of records, I'll report the claim to, to CMS. 
And I then I've tried to update with additional ICD codes. So in other words, I had a, an initial set, and then I had more when, when they came in from another provider. And I called the BCRC, and I said, well, there's no function on the MSPRP to update ICD codes or to add codes even, not, not change them, but just add them. And they said, okay, we'll send it in by letter. And I sent in three different letters with the additional coding, and it never showed up on the ledger. It huh. never showed up on the CPL. And when I got my final demand, it wasn't there. And, you know, again, you would think this is, you know, what – CMS wants. This is what the BACRC asks for. They want, you know, as much information as possible and updated codes. And this is coming from the claimant who's, you know, affirmatively making sure that they're reporting what's claim related and it got ignored. And again, that might, might've been, you know, it's rare that I have to do an update. Uh, usually I've got all the codes when I first report. Um, but the, the, the few instances I've had where I've tried to, to, uh, to either amend or even just add coding has met with silence, uh, and it wasn't like it was. Uh, it happened quickly. It was, you know, a year <laughs> after I reported these, and they didn't get added. So there's some uh, there's some need, I think, for more uh, or maybe better um, tools to use uh, to make sure that ultimately you can clean up that record. So in the end, you have the right set of codes in front of you when you settle. That that's a great point. You know, just just to to, to add to that. So. This is, uh, I think, Steve, what you've outlined is, is somewhat of a flaw in, in CMS's process in general, because from a plaintiff uh, point of view, plaintiff attorney point of view, when you're reporting, that's that's what CMS considers, they, they would call it a self-report. And so you can make those reports via the MSBRP, um, but it's really intended as a one-time thing. And there really is no mechanism to, to apply updates once a self-report is submitted. And, and CMS really relies extraordinarily heavily on the Section 111 reporting. Usually the, the self-report is, is the thing that occurs first, and that gets the, the wheels moving in terms of CMS being able to create uh, a lead in their system, which then they can develop into a recovery case. Once they do that, that's when they can identify the conditional payments that might be outstanding and determine those lien amounts. Until they have that self-report and they have that information in their system, they're not able to do that. They, they need to have that coverage record created in that lead in their system before they can actually identify that conditional payment lien amount. Uh, but they don't really allow folks who send the self-reports uh, to update. Section 111 is, is a little bit different. So Section 111, they expect eventually there to be a Section 111 report to come in and then overlay the information that was initially reported via the self-report. And CMS's attitude, it tends to be that, you know, this is the information that they're going to receive directly from the RE, that insurer or self-insured entity is, tends to be the information that, that they, they trust above all, all other sources. And that may or may not be an appropriate assumption to make, to, depending on the reporter and the and the, the individuals who are making the self-report. And that can, that can vary greatly. But it's, it's really highly dependent on the Section 111 reporting coming in and having it right. And if if in those situations where, say, Steve, you had those ICD codes that you – further ICD codes that you had identified subsequently and you weren't able to report them uh, from your perspective as a plaintiff attorney, then – 
some hopefully the section 111 re is going to be reporting those codes and so another another avenue to approach that would be communicating with the the uh the defendant uh the the section 111 rre the insurer self-insured entity to ensure that they have the appropriate codes that they need so that they can report that via the section 111 process and well, if yeah. you can do that then then that that might help but it's it's tricky and I think you just hit the nail on the head, which is there is radio silence when it comes to the communication between claimants and carriers when it comes to Section 111 reporting. I mean, most claimants' attorney, plaintiffs' attorneys don't even really realize that it isn't just the settlement amount that's being reported, that there are codes that are being reported, and that there is room in there for both you know, um, collaboration and for potential problems uh, when, you know, a code is either, um, you know, uh, erroneously included or something's not included. And, you know, the more collaboration that both sides could have on that issue, uh, you know, the more efficient, you know, the, the reporting would be, uh, the, the better the information Medicare would have it that it could rely on. I mean, I understand why Medicare relies more on the carrier than the claimant self-reporting when it comes to trying to find something that's, you know, that's correct. That's uh, all inclusive and that sort of thing. Uh, but claimants are in the dark when it comes to those codes that are being reported. And I think that there's, um, there's a lot of room for improvement. Uh, and I would say more from the claimant side than from the carrier side to just engage in that conversation. Uh, and that could happen around the release, you know, in every type of claim situation, there is some type of a document that closes out the claim wherein there's an opportunity, especially on the liability side, and I would say probably on the comp side too, but uh, when we are closing out a claim to say, all right, where is where are these codes agreed? You know, where's the list, the master list of codes? And can we look at those and make sure that that's correct uh, before it's submitted, finally, you know, submitted to CMS with uh, the TPOC, um, you know, or when you're closing out ORM, if that's appropriate, but especially with a TPOC, and you've got to make sure that you've got it right. It's just... I think a missed opportunity for clarity and I try and evangelize that issue that point to my, you know, uh, plaintiff brothers and sisters. And, uh, it's still falling on deaf ears because there's really no, there's been no real downside. There's been real, no real leverage or a regulatory, uh, follow-up, uh, or oversight at this point. And that may, you know, be enhanced once October comes around and now, People are starting to think more about Medicare, and even if it's the MSA issue, they're also thinking more about conditional pay, conditional payment side. But yeah, this, there's a real lack of communication uh, about coding and Section 111 reporting from the claimant's perspective that I wish there was more of. Great, great point. I, I, I couldn't agree more. I would love a plaintiff's attorney to reach out to me with a list of ICD-10 codes because I think that that would be so helpful in both for both the carrier and the plaintiff and i think too you know a lot of a lot of REs don't have their own in-house nst compliance department and they rely on the adjuster level to report these things and so when you're looking at the codes at an adjuster level and you've got a caseload of 150 you may not capture that the strain became a tear or you may not realize it that the coding if you're looking for the codes in the medical records that they may not necessarily have updated with a change in diagnosis. So you kind of have to have that ability to derive that information. But any help that the parties could come to or agreement on those would be really helpful. 
about 10 years ago, all states started asking for the HECFA forms as opposed to billing summaries because of the demands. You know, again, traditionally, uh, we would get billing summaries from the providers and not the actual submission forms that they would use when they were getting reimbursed. And, of course, the HECFA form is perfect because it's got all the CPT codes, all the ICD codes. It's got everything laid out fairly clearly. And everyone was complaining, and I was going, why are you complaining? It's going to make things faster and easier in the evaluation of these claims if they've got proper coding. So I just I send Excel spreadsheets, and I make sure that before demand goes out, every data service has a CPT broken out by CPT codes and associated ICD codes because, again, it just makes – you can instantly look at that and start picking up information as opposed to having to dig through chart notes and soap notes and, you know, trying to piece things together uh, with facts that are so spread out all over the place. It really consolidates things. Um, anyway, again, my I'll get off my efficiency soapbox, but I think there's a lot of room for that, uh, especially on the claimant side. I'll, I'll accept that the guilt of that on, uh, on my side of things. Well, I think that's a, those are excellent points. And honestly, um, you know, I, I think our listeners, you know, hopefully uh, will will take those points into consideration because that would ease a lot of strains when it comes to ICD coding. I think on the Section 111 end, I think on the settlement end and on this, the conditional payment end as well. And let's talk a little bit now about the civil monetary penalty. So... Jeremy, in our prior uh, conversation that we had before the podcast, you had mentioned uh, the distinction in the penalties, the proposed, I should say, penalties with improper or contradictory reporting from TPOC and ORM. Could you kind of expound on that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So I, I think the the where the the danger really comes into play from a civil money penalties perspective. Um, is with uh, there 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 are three proposed means of assessing penalties that, that CMS had uh, published in their notice of proposed rulemaking. That's it's still open ended. We're not sure if that what this is going to look like when they finalize their rules. But as it stands, the the, the place where this gets really tricky and where I think uh, folks will run into trouble here is with the second of the three means, which indicates that um, penalties may be imposed when uh, discrepancies are identified via the conditional payment recovery process uh, in, in what uh, the, the debtor is informing CMS versus what they reported via their Section 111 reporting. And so if there are exceptionally vague ICD codes that are being submitted or codes that are related to things that aren't actually associated with the accident for which the RE would have primary payment responsibility, um, and, and then, uh, you know, come time for a, there's a conditional payment notice that goes out or a demand is issued and, and, you know, the, the, the insurer self-insured entity is reviewing the, the information. They're like, oh, well, we're not responsible for this individual's diabetes. Like we're going to dispute this, maybe not even realizing that they reported a code for diabetes on, on their section 111 report. Well, now, um, based on the on CMS's proposed rules, if that that comes up via the conditional payment appeals process, and, and CMS is able to go back and say, "Hey, look, this is the code that you reported via Section 111. This is completely at odds with what you're telling us now." They can find that that entity up to a thousand dollars a day 
uh, per per claim. And so those fines can get astronomical, extraordinarily fast to the point where I think, and, and this is where it's going to be really interesting and, and it's, it's a little scary, but to the point where it, it might actually, in some scenarios, be uh, financially damaging to even appeal uh, a, a particular um, claim uh, or the conditional payments that are, are being requested from, from CMS if the Section 11 reporting was off, because you might be making an appeal to, to try and get some of these charges removed, uh, but the, the penalties that you may incur could be significantly greater than the money that you would save through that appeal. So it's it's really really going to be tricky and that's it's i think that's a it's a pretty clever way for cms to approach the penalties it's uh, you know it's it's, it's going to be a painful thing but it's uh you know i i don't know it's it's a little scary and people need to be very careful i think the key is get your section 111 reporting right right out of the gate and if you realize that there are any mistakes you need to fix them as soon as possible before you get into that scenario be extra careful right out of the gate and you don't have that problem down the line. You don't have to make that difficult judgment call as to whether it's even worth appealing or not. Um, but it's, it's, it's a little scary. Excellent point. We talked a lot about the impact of ICD coding and the various aspects of MSP compliance that it can touch and impact and in fact. And so the next question, what are some tips that you can provide to our audience to effectively manage and deal with ICD coding? I think Jeremy said it really well. It's, you know, do the reporting correctly the first time when you have updates, make sure that the updates are accurate. Um, and really that, you know, that's the way I think that you can most easily help yourself as an RRE. If you have medical documentation, use it, but review it carefully. Uh, you know, that that medical documentation is, it can be your best friend, but it can also be your worst enemy if you're not careful. <laughs> so it, you it, try and obtain that information and, and use it, but review every ICD code that's on that documentation. Don't blindly take in ICD codes and report them to CMS just because they're on medical documentation, say for the a data service when an individual went to the hospital after an accident. You can't trust that every ICD code on that medical documentation is something for which you should actually have responsibility. You need to look at every one of those codes, look them up, look up the definition of the code. CMS has their, their published listing of accepted ICD codes. Use that listing to look up the ICD code that's on that medical documentation to try and determine what that ICD code refers to. And, and if it's something that doesn't look like it's something for which the, the RRE should have primary payment responsibility, then you don't include that in your Section 111 report. It gets even trickier, though, if you don't have medical documentation. And that, that's, that's really hard for folks. People who have trouble getting that medical documentation, they have to try and discern these ICD codes based on a description of the injury. And it's hard to give feedback as to how best to tackle that um, because... It, it, it's, you know, layman's terms don't always equal <laughs> the, the language that, that is utilized for an ICD code description. And finding that appropriate ICD code can be quite challenging. Um, all I can say in that respect is, is, is do the absolute best you can to find something that looks like it meets the description of the injury as closely as possible, as specifically as possible. It might not be a 100% perfect science, but get as close as you can. It's, it, 
it's easier said than done again, but it, it, uh, I think that's the best you can do. Well, and in direct response to Jeremy's conundrum right there, what would help is if there was help from the the claimant side and a willingness to engage in the dialogue where when we report, when we send out a letter of representation or if we start a claim or whatever the process is where we begin to have communication with the RRE, ask them because they're all different. Everybody wants to do things a little bit differently. You, you say, what do you need? What can I give you? What do I have that you need that will help you answer these questions? Because what you do as the RRE is going to affect what I get when I get my CPL. You know, it's it's really if the more tandem you can make that task, um, you know, and still appreciate that there are, you know, are there this is an adversarial system and there's, you know, uh, some net tension that's going to be there no matter what. There are things that you can use to find common ground. And this is one place I think that can add to your, you know, that relationship and that interchange of information is to say, hey, you know, what are your requirements? What is it you have to have for us to be able to move to the next step? And let me see if I can get you what you need. Uh, you know, whether it is medical records or billing record or just information about the injury um, that allows that reporting to happen sooner rather than later. I, I find that there's both um, uh, energy and good things as well as some leverage that you can use in having that information as the claimant. You're the originator or your client at least is the originator of that information. And there's some benefit in providing that to the carrier earlier on and maybe get some early agreements to say, hey, you know, so we can streamline the settlement process. How about we agree to do X or that sort of thing? There's there's a whole host of opportunities uh, in the beginning early on to make both sides feel a little more comfortable as you move towards, you know, resolution of the claim. Thank you, Kate. Jeremy and Steve for setting aside some time for us today to talk. And thank you to our audience for setting aside some time to listen to our MSPN podcast. Our next episode will be presented by Sandra Mackler and Kim Roswell. It's going to be a public and private episode dealing with surgical pricing and what the data, data development committee does. Please join us for that very exciting episode. 